0: From St. Louis Public Radio, this is St. Louis on the Air. So the defense did not
1: bring up that this was false evidence. You were left with the
0: impression this was good science. Until just recently.
1: What was that like to finally talk about everything that happened so many
0: years ago? It was heavy. Um, It was relief. Yeah. And I think of anything, um, forgiveness from Michael. You feel like you want his forgiveness. Absolutely. I was asked recently, did you buckle in court? I don't think I buckled. I think I was lied to and I think the justice system failed us. From this point forward, the gentleman needs needs to be released from prison, and if nothing more, an apology for what's been done to him.
1: I'm Sarah Fenske. Michael Polite has been in custody since he was 14 years old. He has spent two decades in prison for the murder of his mother, Rita. Rita Poley was beaten to death in her home in Washington County, Missouri, and then set on fire. That was in December of 1998. Mike was the youngest of her three kids, the only one still living at home. He and his friend had a sleepover that night at Rita's trailer. They told sheriff's deputies they woke up to the smell of smoke and discovered that scene of horror. But, as Mike and I discussed last month,
2: Mike quickly became a suspect. It's their opinion that I acted strange or acted funny. Uh, Sheriff Ron Skiles, he said that uh, I, I didn't act the way that he acted when his mom passed. You know, well, you know, I'm sorry that he lost his mom because I know what that's like. But I would like to know the circumstances of which he lost his mom.
1: So they ended up arresting you and and pretty quickly.
2: They arrested me December 7th, 1998.
1: So this is basically 48 hours later. hmm you begged the officers to take your fingerprints. I did. Because you said somebody was trying to frame you for something you didn't do. I didn't. You felt like if they could just look at your fingerprints and compare that to what was there, that you'd be exonerated.
2: I, I offered everything. I cooperated with them to the point where they just, they just didn't want my cooperation anymore. As a matter of fact, when they wanted to re-exhume my mother because they had failed or forgot to take her fingernails my attorney at the time, Wayne Williams, looked at me at this court proceeding and said, Bernie, we can object to this. I said, don't, because I'm trying to give them evidence to exonerate me.
1: And so what would be under her fingernails might be DNA from the person who killed her. Exactly. You're, you're looking at this like a chance to get to the bottom of this.
2: Yes. Justice for Rita.
1: That is Mike Polite. He has insisted all along that he did not kill his mother. And 12 years ago, he finally got someone to listen. The Midwest Innocence Project got his letter and came to visit him in prison to hear more. He told me how he felt after finally getting to explain to someone how he'd been railroaded.
2: I left that visit and I I paced myself for four days. I I wore a hole in the floor, right? And I'm I'm reliving everything that I told him. and And I'm Reliving the expressions that I'm seeing as I'm telling my story. And, and they were just disgusted. They were just in awe and they were just, you could see in the faces of of how did this happen. And from that moment on, I knew, I, I knew that I had help and I knew that they were going to get me out of here.
1: In August, the Midwest Innocence Project, along with the Roderick and Solange MacArthur Justice Center, filed Mike's petition for relief in appellate court. They were swiftly denied. But yesterday, they took their plea to the court they always thought was their best shot, the Missouri Supreme Court. And this time, they had something new, an affidavit from a juror. Linda Dickerson Bell was on the jury that sent Michael Polite to life in prison with no chance of parole. And she joins us today to share what happened and how she feels about it today. So Linda, so welcome.
0: Good afternoon.
1: So Michael Polite was on trial as a 17-year-old in Washington County, Missouri. You were chosen for the jury.
0: I was. Take us back. Were you eager to be put on this jury? I was somewhat arrogant that I wouldn't be put on the jury, to be quite frank with you. And, and why did you think that? Um, my father was the current um, foreman of the grand jury for St. Francis County. My father was a police officer I served on the Park Hills City Council and worked very closely with law enforcement and it was my assumption and we know what those are. Um, but it was my assumption that I would not be chosen because they did not want someone closely related to law enforcement. That seems like a pretty solid assumption, but in this case it wasn't it wasn't right. They let you on that jury. I thought I'd be in and out. I didn't make reservations for anything other than the afternoon and and you're right. I mean it was it, it took me aback. And so you ended up getting on this jury. What was it like
1: hearing the case? They're trying to convince you that this guy is guilty. And, and the prosecutors put a bit
0: into this case. They absolutely did. Yes, they, they put in the time and the effort and they brought forth the evidence. And unfortunately, until I was just recently chosen again, or not chosen, but brought in to be selected for a juror, which I was not chosen for. Um, but until then, I never heard like the information that we should have heard then. Um, the burden of proof is on the state. Not on the defendant.
1: That's not something you were told on this first jury.
0: Never was told that. Never, never. If I was told that, it didn't sink in. But I don't believe we were ever told that. It was never reiterated as it was in this last case. I mean, the lady even stood up and said, you see this gentleman? Just because he's sitting here in the condition that he's sitting, he is not guilty. As a matter of fact, he is innocent until proven guilty. That played into that. Um, Just hearing Michael's voice, what that could have done for us. During that trial.
1: So, yeah, he did not testify at this trial.
0: He asked to testify. He was advised not to testify.
1: And and yeah, he he said that later to the judge at sentencing, but at the time that you're sitting there as a juror, you didn't know that. Were you thinking, okay, I'm waiting to hear this side of things? That's
0: absolutely what I was thinking. I just kept thinking I've heard their part. There's always two sides to every story. And so I was waiting to hear the second part that proved that he had not done it, and there was never anything presented, never. So I can't tell you that there was evidence or proof or motive or anything that was presented that said he was guilty. But what I can tell you is that there was never anything from the defense.
1: So, yeah, the entire defense in this case, they spent less than half a day.
0: I didn't know that until recent because I have purposefully not tried not to listen, hear, watch anything about the trial, not because I don't have guilt about it because I 200 percent do, but because I didn't want to confuse what I know with what I heard. And so I was very careful about that.
1: So you were trying to kind of keep this straight in your head. Did you have the sense that at some point somebody might come to you and I revisit this I hoped that they case? would.
0: I absolutely hoped that they would. So you were waiting. I was waiting because I didn't know what was appropriate. Was it appropriate for me to reach out to them? Was it appropriate for them to reach out to me? I didn't really know. And I was just hoping and praying. And I make myself readily available. And so, I mean, you can't say Google my name. You can't say that you can't find me. That's nonsense.
1: Yeah, I mean, you. so you have a pretty prominent position in St. Francis County. You're the executive director of Habitat for Humanity there. You weren't hiding.
0: Not hiding. I was also running for presiding commissioner. I'd served 24 years on the Park Hill City Council. I was a treasurer for the Chamber of Commerce not hiding no
1: and so you were carrying around as you said guilt guilt.
0: absolutely guilt I still carry it to this day so you
1: had this guilt you were thinking at some point somebody might contact you about this and
0: nobody did nobody did in 2016 I reached out to after the MTV movie that went I reached out and just didn't ask for them to contact me but just said hey I was a juror on that episode, because I didn't want them just to think that I'm looking for anything. I don't want anything from this other than Michael Poli to be given back his life. And I'm not saying do anything with what he's lost already. We can't do anything about that. But from this point forward, the gentleman needs needs to be released from prison. And if nothing more, an apology for what's been done to him.
1: And so you reached out to somebody. This was back in 2016, 2016. I okay. Did, when yeah. this MTV, they, this TV show did some episodes on yes. this case. You reached out to people on that TV show
0: or No response. But again, I didn't ask for a response. I just put out there that I was a juror. So then again, mm-hmm. my name should have been familiar and they should have recognized me as a juror had they needed the information and so I thought I had done my part. I think it was for me more so than anything just to say that I tried. Um, and then when this episode came out in August and I had heard about it, it was coming up again. I did read a, an article in the in the local Daily Journal. And then I sent in a message, and I think it, the ver, the verbiage is just, I served as a juror, and what can I do to make this right? And so then at that point, you ended up meeting with Megan Crane. I
1: did. She came to my home. And she is an attorney for Mike Polite. She works for the MacArthur mm-hmm. Justice Center.
0: Yes. Sat down with her there. Yes, And shared with her just details that had never been, I'd never had an opportunity to share before.
1: What was that like to finally talk about everything that happened so many years ago? It
0: was heavy. Um, It was relief. Yeah. And I think of anything, um, forgiveness from Michael. You feel like you want his forgiveness. Absolutely. Because you feel bad about what you did? Yes. I was asked recently, did you buckle in court? I don't think I buckled. I think I was lied to, and I think the justice system failed us.
1: And so you know that you were a part of this jury. Um, you were surprised to be chosen for this jury. You were <laughs> chosen for this jury.
0: Yeah, yeah. nothing and that you really want to be chosen for. It's not the lottery, let me tell you
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're, you're looking at somebody's life. Like, do they right. get to go free? Do they end up incarcerated for the rest of their life?
0: Yes, and that's why I held out as long as I did, was I thought he at least deserved the possibility of parole, just in case. And again, I was 30 years old. I didn't really know what all of this meant. And and I mean, I wasn't your typical normal 30-year-old. Yes, I was serving on a city council. I was responsible for lots of things. But I wasn't prepared for what happened in court those days.
1: So Uh, it's ironic you came in as somebody with a lot of ties to law enforcement. Your dad was a police chief. You had reason to sort of be pro-police. Absolutely. And yet through the course of this
0: trial, you're like, wait a minute. Something didn't feel right. I mean, I hate to say it, and, and names are names, but um, there was one gentleman that just continually stuck out in my mind, and his name was Kurt Davis, and they used him as a lot of information for that trial. And looking at the gentleman just told me, something right. He's not telling the truth. Something's not exactly correct. I often wonder, why is he not still in law enforcement? So this was
1: a witness for the prosecution, one of it the was. law enforcement people on this case. Yes. You found him untrustworthy. It
0: did. Absolutely did. And he proved that um, a couple of years ago when he reached out through me through Messenger. So we're talking today to Linda Dickerson-Bell. She was a juror in St.
1: Francis County, one of 12 people who convicted Michael Polite in the 1998 murder of his mother, Rita. He was 14 years old at the time of the murder. He's been in prison ever since. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation with Linda. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. to our conversation. My guest today is Linda Dickerson-Bell. She was a juror in the murder trial of Michael Polite. He was 14 when his mother, Rita, was killed in Washington County, Missouri, and he was convicted as a 17-year-old. He's now 37, and he's been in prison ever since. Mike's lawyers filed a wrongful conviction claim with the Missouri Supreme Court yesterday, and they had affidavits from three jurors as part of that. The latest, the one that is brand new for this filing, was from Linda Dickerson-Bell, who now has some grave concerns about what happened at that trial. Trial. And Linda, I want to go back to a couple key points in that trial. The state had one piece of physical evidence tying Mike to what they alleged was setting his mother on fire and, and putting gasoline. The nail in the coffin is... So this was
0: important evidence for you. It was the only evidence. It was the only evidence that they had, and it was the fact that they represented that his clothing and his shoes had gasoline on them. The clothing, I understand, has had since been lost. Mm-hmm. Um, that's pitiful in my in my estimation. Um, And then the fact that apparently in 1998, there was evidence that proved that there was not gasoline on the tennis shoes. It was actually a chemical that was used to make the the tennis shoes. The the murder didn't happen until late 1998. In 1990, I mean, somewhere either the prosecution should have known this Mm -hmm. or the defense should have known this. So and the defense did not
1: bring up that this was false evidence. You no. were left with the impression this was good science. Until just recently. And so that would have made a big difference for you had you known what the science actually said
0: about the lack of gasoline on those shoes. It would have confirmed what I thought all along, which was that Michael Poley did not kill his mother. So there is another thing here that that was a very
1: odd thing in that when Michael Polite was younger, he went by the nickname Bernie.
0: Um, And this is short for Bernard. This was just a nickname everyone
1: called him by. So at the trial,
0: people frequently referred to him as Bernie. Even the prosecution. I mean, even the defense referred to him as Bernie. And And so why did that make an impression on you? Because Bernie to me was the indication that he was he liked to burn things. I mean it was represented as that in the case and in everything that they represented against him was not only that his mother had been burned, but that he he had a habit of burning things on a regular basis. And so I, I thought, and I know that other jurors did as well, that Bernie was the nickname because he liked to burn things. So you assumed yep. his nickname
1: was B U R N Y. Correct.
0: Not B E R N I E. Correct.
1: And now that you know that Bernie was just a nickname, again, short for Bernard, how do you feel about
0: that assumption that you made? Ashamed, embarrassed, and hoping that we can fix this. Um, really kind of ticked off, and I'll use that word because I can't use the other word on, on the air, um, but really kind of ticked off But nobody else had thought about this and that the defense, in fact, did not bring that. I mean, that should have been the first thing that he he debated. The defense my, never
1: explained or never even mentioned, here's why we're calling him Bernie. No and maybe people thought
0: it wasn't significant but to me it was significant.
1: And you say other jurors you think came to that same conclusion
0: that Bernie meant he was he was a firebug a, a little arsonist that. in training. Yes, yes. And several times the the prosecutor had indicated that. So tell us a bit about these
1: deliberations. You were the one who was a holdout. You yes. were not convinced of his guilt. You, as you said, there was some of this evidence that that kind of made you wonder, but you weren't getting much
0: from the defense. You still were not ready to convict. I was not ready to convict, but I didn't know what other choice we had. I never heard until most recently um, the word acquit. I mean, I wasn't even aware that it was an option. It was either he was going to prison for life or he was going to prison with life without parole. Those were the two options that That's what you thought the choices were. Correct. Okay. Yes.
1: And so you're there, and you have this this doubt. You're not sure if this guy is guilty. How did the other jurors or the people there in deliberations with you, how did they
0: react to these doubts that you had and that you weren't sure? Some sympathetic, others quite arrogant, and um, retaliation. I mean, I don't know what other word to use it, but I I will never forget there was a gentleman sitting two seats to me to the right, almost across the table because it was a shorter table. And I can remember him slamming his hand down on the desk at me when I said, I just don't, nothing is telling me that he did this. My heart doesn't tell me. The evidence doesn't tell me, but I'm waiting on the, I was waiting the whole time. I was waiting on the defense. Nothing tells me that he did it. And the gentleman tells me, are you stupid? Obviously he did it. Let's get this done and get out of here. And that, from that point forward, it's like everybody just kind of jumped on board and let's get this done and get out of here. I never felt good about it. When they pulled the juror, like they do that at the end of the thing, I didn't know this either, but individually you have to stand up and say whether you're guilty or not guilty. I, st- I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure what I would say. And when I finally said it, because I had already agreed to it, mm-hmm. um, I cried. I wept. I cried. I was upset. So there's another juror who filed an affidavit in
1: this case. He was found by the, the Innocence Project back in 2017. And he mentions you. He doesn't call you by name, but he talks about a woman who had a young child and that, that was she me. was struggling with this. And he said that the other jurors were, were worried that the, when the jury would be polled in the courtroom that you might change what you said. Sure. They knew what stress you were under. Yes. And so these other jurors have now come forward and said they've had doubts as well. Looking back on this and looking back on that moment when you stood up and and you said guilty.
0: Hardest thing I ever did in my life. And how do you feel about that today? Not happy. Yeah. uh, Not proud. There are some things in your life you wish you could go back and redo, and this is one of them. Um, Most of my life I've lived trying to be a good person and do the right thing, and this is one thing I think I extremely failed. So you came forward, you found his attorneys, you
1: met with them, um, you agreed to meet with us today and and tell your story. And Megan Crane, who is now Michael Polite's lawyer with the MacArthur Justice Center, she said she thinks your affidavit could make a big difference. This is a quote from her. She said, the state's prioritization of finality over fairness, trying to say we should just let this stand, is premised on protecting the jury's verdict. Well, that goes out the window when the jurors themselves believe he is innocent and want their verdict reversed. Each of the tests for our constitutional claim, asks if the violation made a difference at the trial, if the result would have been different. These jurors make the answer obvious. Do you hope that by coming forward that you can make an impression that the Missouri Supreme Court will reopen this case and and bring in a special master?
0: That has been my hope all along, and I wish I could have done it sooner. But again, I didn't know what was the right thing to do. Um, But from the day I walked out of that, I was never proud of, of serving on that juror. I felt like we failed. We failed the justice system simply because i think a lot of information was kept from us like i said the whole issue with the the chemical on the tennis shoes there were several other things the fact that the, the fingernails once they were exhumed were misplaced the clothing was misplaced i mean in at least it was a, a poor poor prosecution mm-hmm. but it was still better than the defense so you've kept this in for like 20 years at this point 21 years um how does it feel to now have this out there I can't say that I'm proud. I'll never be proud of it because like just my stepmother asked me last night again, you know, did you, did you, did you crumble? I don't crumble. Very rarely do I crumble, but this is something I'm not proud of. I'm the kind of person when you make me mad, nothing motivates me more than madness. And I'm mad because I feel like we were lied to. I'm mad because I feel like the state knew all along that he wasn't guilty, but I think it was ego and pride. And I think it's still ego and pride whenever you're still trying to reach out to that prosecutor and he won't even give you the time of day. I've made mistakes in my life, and I'll own up to them, and I hope to goodness that he can do the same thing. Well, Linda Dickerson-Bell, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me.
1: And we want to leave you today with some words from Mike Poley. He told us this when we spoke to him in September.
2: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw punches. I'm going to keep throwing punches. If, they, if, they den- if the Supreme Court denies me, I'm going to throw another punch. I'm not going to stop fighting. And justice for Rita. You know, I wish people would yell it out there. I wish people would pick it with signs.
1: This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury with audio engineering by Aaron Dore and production assistance from Jane Mather Glass. It was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here.